Did you know the Franklin County Sheriff's Office has programs to support our seniors? This is Sheriff Chris Donnelly. Our triad unit provides free medical equipment to senior citizens who need help staying in their homes. This could mean the difference between going home after rehab or into a nursing home. Our incarcerated men at the Franklin County Jail work to repair and maintain donated wheelchairs, scooters, walkers, and hospital beds that we then make available to seniors for free. Just another service our Sheriff's Office is proud to provide for you and your family. The ideas and opinions expressed in this show do not reflect the views of WHMP or Saga Communications. This show may contain subject matter not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Put the past behind you and prepare for a new day. You cannot live in the past and still be present mentally and emotionally for today. Now is the time to position yourself to embrace what is and prepare for what will be. Keep an open mind, uncluttered with worry, regrets, or speculation. Cherish the time you have and the opportunities that present themselves. Get ready to take the next step. Hi, I'm Lisa Riley, and each week we're here to share stories, not just from current or formerly justice-involved individuals, but even those who might be considered underdogs in the game of life, because all of them are hustling to put their past in the rearview mirror and start anew. And of course, we know it takes a village of resources and people to help those who are hustling to carve that new path and prove that failure isn't final. This is The Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to this week's The Hustler Files. This week, we wanted to continue with the opioid conversation, but from a slightly different vantage point, with an organization that is large in breadth in collectively helping reduce opioid and heroin addiction and preventing overdose deaths, but may not be as familiar. For the first time on The Hustler Files, I want to welcome Franklin County Sheriff Chris Donnellan and Deborah McLaughlin, the coordinator of the Opioid Task Force of Franklin County. Welcome, welcome. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. I'm very excited. Um, actually, the Franklin County Sheriff's Department is also a new advertiser of the show, so that makes it even more exciting for us. Let's start with you, Sheriff Donnellan. Give us sort of the 30,000-foot view of your past and, and what brought you to be Sheriff of Franklin County. Oh, I started my career as a police officer many, many moons ago. Cut my teeth working with addicted men in the criminal justice system when I became a probation officer back in 1996. And, you know, I knew that that was the work I was called to do. It was very gratifying work. And in the position that I'm in now, uh, to have the opportunity to bring men who you have really their undivided attention for a period of months or sometimes years and really give them the tools and the opportunity to transform what they've been and what they can be is, is really great work. And we're having great success at it in Franklin County, and I'm, I'm happy to be doing it. So I was reading your bio, and what's really interesting is after you had your first career as a police officer and then went into the probation service, you then became an elected representative yeah. of the Massachusetts House. Did I, I, mean, I, leave, did I leave that out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you kind of left that part out. I just find that interesting because you served four terms. Yeah, my priest told me leaving Boston saved my soul, and I think he was right. Oh, geez. Um, okay, maybe no, that's a different conversation. Uh, but no, no I, I did. I, I served four terms in the legislature, and it was very interesting work, but I took it from the perspective of really a citizen legislator. I, I wanted to serve. I wanted the opportunity, but I didn't want to make a career out of it. 
So I knew when my time was up there, I wanted to get back to public safety work. And when the opportunity for sheriff opened up, that was my perfect off-ramp to leaving really eight um, incredible learning years and effective years in the legislature and coming back home, um, being able to stay home and work and be back in public safety work. Did you find becoming sheriff of Franklin County, but you had this network out of Boston with the House of Representatives that it's enabled you since you became sheriff in 2011 to have more of a voice in what the opioid task force is doing statewide versus if you had just gone right to sheriff? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. Not only that, the legislative process, the people understanding how government works was very helpful in uh, developing the programs that we have in Franklin County. Are you the exception or more of the norm in going from a service-based career as a police officer then into a legislative career, then sort of back to a service career? Um, More of the exception. I think there's three sheriffs who are former legislators, two are former police officers. The rest are legal uh, legal degrees or work from the DA's office or something like that. But it does give you a very different perspective on the work you do. Sure does. That's awesome. Deborah. if you don't mind, I'll call you Deb. You are the coordinator with the Opioid Task Force. So give us some background on yourself and how long you've been with the task force in in Franklin County. Well, I've been fortunate to be in this role since February of 2017. So it's been a little over six years uh, out of the near decade that the task force has been in existence. And prior to that, I've worked in a variety of public policy positions uh, at the state level in Massachusetts and also in Vermont. And you're originally a native of Ohio. I am. I'm a Buckeye. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. Well, for any of the the, uh, Buckeyes out there listening, we have one in the studio. What brought you to Western Mass? Uh, I'd say a combination of things. Uh, When I left college at OU, I was engaged to a man that I ended up marrying, uh, and, and he had family in the area. So what is your role at the Opioid Task Force? Like, what do you oversee? I know that from what I've been reading, it's a 400-member entity. Maybe you could speak about that a little bit. That's a lot of members. It is a lot of members, um, and I'm grateful for the support that we receive from a variety of sectors. Really, at the uh, inspiration of Sheriff Donilon, Register Merrigan, and DA Sullivan, the other two co-chairs of the Opioid Task Force, Uh, Their stature in the community and their commitment to this issue has really rallied a number of people to come to the table when we really are looking for evidence-based and other trauma-informed solutions to this tragic public health emergency. So is the task force more policy-driven or is it more hands-on, day-to-day, actually working with other organizations that are dealing with people with addiction? It's a great question. I think we've grown for more of a systems-based approach to still retain that, but also incubate projects. So for example, we've been able to receive a number of federal grants through the Sheriff's Department as our fiscal home to create a post-overdose follow-up and outreach program called Connect. So that's very hands-on in the community where a, a team goes out within 72 hours of an overdose to provide support. So we learn from those experiences and have that kind of come back to our systems work. What's working here? What are the barriers for people getting treatment? What is our advocacy platform with our legislators because we know that addiction is a complex disease and it takes many avenues to support someone in their recovery journey from addiction. 
So of those 400 members, how many actually are hands-on every day and how many are more of a, just a support system mm-hmm. for the, the task force? It can vary. We have an executive council with five working committees and each working committee has a work group. So the committees can vary anywhere from 25 to 40 members, depending on the topic. We do public events all the time. We just had one at Greenfield Community College on June 9th, looking at the importance of recreating recovery-friendly workplaces. We had nearly 70 people there. Things have been changed somewhat because of the pandemic. Prior to that happening, it wouldn't be uncommon for us to be in public meetings where there'd be 200 people or more. But like everyone, we've moved to a Zoom platform and continued our work. And our levels of engagement actually went up as a result of that. When we calculated our impact in last calendar year, I think we had over 1,500 people attend our meetings. Wow. So I'll switch over back to you, Sheriff Donilon. Um, You're a co-chair on the task force as well as being sheriff, and you share that with two other co-chairs. How involved are you on a daily or weekly basis? I mean, you have a lot to cover under your just under the sheriff moniker. So how much time can you actually give to the task force and and the time you can't give? Who else do you depend on to cover that? Well, that's how we got into the structure that we have now, because initially it was John Merrigan, Dave Sullivan and me, and we were literally running this task force in its infancy, trying to develop these subcommittees, trying to move all these people who wanted to be involved. How do we get them involved so it's, it's um, in a positive, structured way? And we all realized we have day jobs. We can't keep doing this. So we went to the legislature, our delegation at the time. They gave us an earmark of $100,000 so we could hire our first executive director. And um, the earmark has grown since then. We have Deb now as our executive director with a, f- a staff of people under her. So they do the daily work the daily meetings, the organization of the subcommittees, the implementation of our grants, all that. You know, the the three of us are basically figureheads. You know, again, we add our our names, our offices, in some instances our staff to assist, but the daily work is Deb and and her team at the the task force office. So what percentage would you say of people in Franklin County, and I think in your bio, Deb, it says Quabbin region as well. Correct. What percentage of those people that are having overdoses or have to be administered Narcan or whatever end up back in your facility in Franklin County to receive that next level of treatment? That's a tough question because we kind of don't follow the the, the numbers that way. So our recidivism rate is somewhere in the 30s to 40 percent. So that's that's the easiest way to answer that question. And that's not necessarily the addiction, but a rearrest. Um, they were involved back in committing a crime again, so they come back, uh, come back to the House of Correction. But what we what we have been watching, as far as the work of the opioid task force goes, is how our work has impacted overdoses and overdose deaths. Again, this goes back to turn back the clock to 2012 and 2013. We couldn't even get that data. How many people died last month of of overdoses? Because the Department of Public Health, it, there was a two year lag between people dying and the data coming out. So we had we put together this loosey-goosey, we're going to call the police, we're going to call the ambulance companies, we're going to call the fire department at the end of every month on all 26 towns in Franklin County and find out how many deaths did you have. That's how we were trying to self-generate data so we knew where the pockets of trouble were, um, how, to, how to approach it, and we've just kind of grown from there as far as dealing with overdoses, overdose deaths. Um, we now have more up-to-date data. We look at mm-hmm. the implementation of our programs and our policies to see the impact that it has on, on overdoses and overdose deaths. 
and it's difficult because it ebbs and flows based on people's behaviors, based on the types of drugs coming into the county and when they come. And we've gone from from heroin to opioid to prescription drugs to fentanyl to now xylazine. xylazine. Mm -hmm. um, and as these things come and they're more potent, suddenly it hits the area and we have more deaths. So it's, it's crazy to keep track of. It's crazy to try to stay one step ahead of it. But I can't even imagine what our numbers uh, would look like if we didn't have this task force doing the work that it does. So you now have monthly access to the data? Is it that narrow that from when it happens, you get it immediately? Or is it still like six months or a year? Like, how are you gathering the data? There are several ways where we use the data. So we're really fortunate to have access through the DA's office because of his relationships with the Office of the Medical Examiner and the Mass State Police. He aggregates data on a regular basis that he shares with us. So that's one data point. The Connect program that I mentioned earlier, uh, through the federal funding we've been able to receive, we created uh, a critical incident management system, or SIMS. It's, it's actually a software program developed by Kelly Research Associates and used by almost every county in Massachusetts now. So that data is available in real time, and we get reports that they aggregate on a monthly basis, then on a you know, quarterly basis, on a semi-annual basis, on an annual basis. So we use that to compare trends. And then the last uh, set of data that we do look at is the Department of Public Health data. Um, there, is, there can still be a bit of a lag. It, it's been much improved because of the Chapter 55 report that you may have heard of, where when um, Governor Baker was in office, he worked with all the state agencies that had some hands-on with any kind of data around this and really created a, a repository that has done a, a really strong job of reporting this both in terms of prescriptions, um, in terms of overdoses that happened there, the, the source of the overdose, uh, how many ambulance runs, like that sort of thing. So we really look at all of that just to, to get a handle on what we're dealing with every day to the sheriff's point and how we can um, continue to do forecasting, how we get Narcan out everywhere that we can. Again, through the sheriff's office, we have access through the bulk purchasing program. Uh, where we, it's half price, you know, and, and, and now the Massachusetts Department of Public Health has made it more possible for community partners to get that for free. So this is all part of an effort to have this life-saving medication in everyone's hands, just like an EpiPen might be available for someone. That's wonderful. We have to take a quick break because that's what we do about this time in the show. And so we're going to be right back. Deb, if you and Sheriff Donald will hang out a little bit longer, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about your programs. And we'll be right back. Get that second cup of coffee. Don't go anywhere. Under the leadership of Sheriff Patrick Kayleen, the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office offers medication-assisted treatment for those struggling with opioid addictions. This is Mindy Cady, Director of Medication for Opioid Use Disorders. We want you all to know that we provide community-based support and referral services with our partners at the Northampton and Ware Recovery Centers. If you or someone you know is living with alcohol or drug addiction or just simply need some direction, we're here and we're happy to help. Stop by or find us at HampshireSheriffs.com. 
Welcome back to this week's The Hustler Files. If you're just joining us, we're chatting this week with Franklin County, Massachusetts Sheriff Chris Donnellan, who is the co-chair of the Franklin County Opioid Task Force, and Executive Director Deborah McLaughlin, also of the Opioid Task Force here in Franklin County. So let's jump back in. Um, before we went to break, Deb, we were talking about the level of connectivity, distribution of Narcan, which brings me to a question, how did the task force originally create that connectivity point with all of the entities that need to be a part of buying into supplying data, but also being on the quote unquote team? Well, from my perspective, I would say it took champions like Sheriff Donnellan, Register Merrigan, and DA Sullivan, where each in their respective fields were starting to see more arrests you know, more court cases involving drug-involved offenses. And this was before my time with the task force, but it's my understanding of the history that based on the respect and relationships they had developed in the community, they called for a meeting just to find out, like, what are you seeing this in your sector? Like, how do we address this as a community? And the sheriff can talk more about this, but it's my understanding yeah. that happened at Greenfield Community College. And it's this huge meeting developed from it. Turn back the clock to 2013. It's, it's hard for, to uh, remember sometimes what the world looked like back yeah. then. But we were all in silos. We weren't talking to each other. We didn't know what each other was doing. We had people being dropped off in the emergency room from overdoses, and you know the hospital didn't know what to do with them. They would treat them for their immediate symptoms and then release them out the door and then wonder why they came right back. Mm -hmm. We weren't good at it. The, the courts weren't good at it. And the world is just a sea change since then. The, the silos are down. We're communicating with each other. We're talking with each other. We meet regularly with each other. When I say with each other, it's police chiefs. It's hospital president. It's college president. It's attorneys, prosecutors and defense attorneys. It's the sheriff. It's uh, the DA's office. And we're all coming to an understanding of the whole community impact of the opioid crisis and how we need to respond to it to save lives. I mean, that's the bottom line. When people ask me the policies we put in place at the jail, uh, why do you do these things? Um, because they're a little unorthodox. The reason is because the alternative is death. And when we didn't have that before. When we were talking about people who were arrested because of alcohol or cocaine, it wasn't death on the other side of that if we didn't do something. So that's really what motivated us here. Yeah, and absolutely. And I, I think, too, in addition to the important partners the sheriff just named, we've learned so much from our recovery community and those with lived experience who are also at the table just to help us figure out how best to navigate what their different needs might be that can actually improve their recovery experiences. And as the sheriff, you can comment on this more, but there were like no treatment beds that existed in our region when the task force first formed in 2013. The two I counties, think. both Franklin and Hampshire County combined, there wasn't a single treatment bed when, wow. we, when we started. Mm -hmm. I just got goosebumps. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to believe, right? But that was the case. Well, there wasn't Narcan. There wasn't a lot of things that, that we have now. Does the medical community support you? Oh, sure. Our medical director actually left her primary care practice because she was so overwhelmed with addiction work, she couldn't do both. Uh, Dr. Poti. Um, mm -hmm. So she's the medical director now for the sheriff's office and for the detox, BHN detox unit. And she does entirely addiction work now. 
And she's um, amazing. She's our medical yeah. director. Too. And in the, in the very beginning, it was the prescription pledge and educating the medical community about prescriptions they're writing. And that was probably the toughest nut to crack with, with the medical community because doctors don't like being told how to treat their patients. And it was a hard conversation to say, you really need to reevaluate how you prescribe these pain medications. But they were pretty good about it. Mm-hmm. And that, so that was one of the first things we conquered way, way early on was um, whole pain management and prescribing. And is there one recovery center in Franklin County now or more than one? We, we have the BHN, which is a detox unit and then a 30-day treatment mm-hmm. program that follows up. And there's a peer recovery center, the Recover Project. Oh, yep, and the Recover and, Project in Greenfield and in Athol. Right, the North Quadrant Recovery Center in Athol. And how many people are in those programs at any given time? That's well, tough. the beds are always full. Yeah. This is the report we get. I think the BHN program has 36 beds, yep. both co-ed. Um, there's another program they opened up recently that I think also has 32 or 36 beds. I think in aggregate, there's roughly 250 beds of, of all levels. There might be some variation in that now because of the impact that COVID has had on our treatment system. Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon for those variations to exist just because of staffing challenges, which have plagued, I think, every industry since COVID happened. So, Sheriff, I want to switch a little bit of a gear here. When you and I first met, we had an amazing multi-level conversation, and one of them was you talking about the data that has come out the last few recent years, that addiction is directly related to trauma within people. Can you speak about that a little bit? Because I think that's a conversation we don't have enough of. I think what we're finding in, in the work that we do is the, um, the impact trauma has on addiction and how many people that we treat and care for in the criminal justice system that when given the opportunity in the right atmosphere or programming will recount instances of trauma in their life and be able to link that to their usage. And I'll give an example. So we talk about uh, a childhood trauma. We're not talking about getting beat up on the playground. We're talking about a kindergartner who comes home from school every day and has to hide in the closet because a mom's drunk boyfriend is going to beat him if he sticks his head out. That's trauma. And a child who lives through something like that will be the child, and, and these are self-described behaviors from the guys that we treat, will be the child in fourth and fifth grade who's stealing their parents' marijuana and alcohol, and by middle school has found heroin, and by 17 or 18 years old, they're committing crimes to access the drugs that they need, and then they end up in the house of the correction by the time they're 20. So that's the pathway. But it links back to that childhood trauma experience. And it could be physical trauma, it could be mental trauma, it could be neglect, it could be sexual trauma. Um, there's all kinds. Uh, and it happens at different stages in their life. Sometimes it's not until adulthood or teenage years. And there's also significant mental health issues. If someone has a diagnosable mental health issue, sometimes that leads to the addiction. The question we ask them And what we're trying to drill down to is what is it that makes you feel that you have to be high to be in a room full of people and succeed at it? Is it trauma? Is it mental health issue? Is it stress? Is it anxiety? Is it depression? Any one of those things. And we're over 90% of the people who are incarcerated now have that type of a dual diagnosis, addiction and mental health or trauma. The numbers are staggering. We talked about it last week with the other group we had talking about opioid addiction from Hampshire County, and 65% of incarcerated people have a drug and mental health addiction. And that's just, we don't share that number enough, and I think as a society we should. So I know we're going to run out of time, because we always do, um, and I would love to have you back to talk a little bit more about the trauma side of this, because I think it is a conversation we need to have more of. But I'm going to ask you each a question. 
All right. I don't tell my guests what they are on purpose. I'm a believer we all have life assignments. And sometimes our life assignments are multiples. Sometimes we go through different ones. Deb, I'll start with you. If you had to look at your life right now in the world you're living in, what do you think your life assignment is? To herd cats. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have jumped in there. No, no. Thank you, thank you. No, 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 that's good. Let's break up a little bit of the somberness. No, it's a great question. Um, I would say it's a it's kind of a variation on that theme, Sheriff. Thank you. <laughs> um, I've seen incredible things happen when people with what seemingly might appear to have very differing points of view. Uh, and, and philosophies and opinions um, when they're all sitting around the table and they can identify their common ground and what they can do together as a result of that. There's some real magic that can happen there. It's complex and sometimes frustrating, I'm sure, for everyone as well, but I really value that space and to try to work with so many people. And we're very, very fortunate to have strong leadership, of an amazing medical director, um, and dedicated community members. We couldn't do any of this without all of them. So you think your life assignment is to be exactly where you are? I feel like everything I've done to this point has led me here, as cliched as that might sound. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a journey that lands you exactly where you know you're supposed to be. Um, Sheriff, over to you. What do you think? You've had many life assignments, I think, yeah. but at the end of the day, where you are now, what, what do you think that journey, life assignment has been for you? That's led me right to where I am right now. Every aspect of my life, work, social, religious, all lands me right where I am right now. I can't imagine being anything other than what I am. I love every day of it. Changing lives, the opportunity to, to change lives. And as they always say, if you love what you do, it's not work. So thank you both again for coming by and, and chatting about this very important subject. The work that you do is such a commitment to the community and improving the quality of life out there in the area that you serve in. And I will look forward to having you both back on at some point in the future to dig a little bit deeper and uh, talk about this some more. So listeners, don't go anywhere. The Hustler Files will be right back to wrap up this week. At the Franklin County Sheriff's Office, our House of Corrections is a no-stigma zone. Hi, I'm Emily, and I'm an Assistant Deputy Superintendent at the Franklin County Sheriff's Office, where we recognize addiction as a disease often rooted in childhood trauma or mental illness. We support, treat, and transition the people in our care with patience and understanding. More importantly, there is no stigma in our house, and I hope you make your house a no-stigma zone, too. For more information on where you can find help, visit opioidtaskforce.org. We are back, and to close out this week's show, today's thoughts come from one of our favorite writers we feature here on the show, Brianna Wiest, The Pivot Year. If someone is falling behind in life, you don't have to remind them. They already know. If someone is unhealthy, they know. If someone is struggling with relationships, with money, with self-image, they know. It's what consumes their thoughts each day. What you need to do for those who are in that place is not to reprimand, but to encourage, to tell them what's good about their lives, to show them the potential within them that you see. What you need to do is love them where they are. When we can't see clearly for ourselves, we need others to speak greatness over us. 
People don't need you to tell them what's wrong with their lives. They already know. They need you to reassure them that they can still make it right. And that's another wrap for this week. It is my ardent hope these stories and the change makers like Deb and Sheriff Donnellan share and release limiting beliefs around addiction, incarceration, and the stigmas that follow those who re-enter society, always hoping for a new lease on life. I sincerely believe that through this storytelling that we can activate change. I do want to thank all of our guests and our advertisers for their continuing support. You can find this show and all of our shows on the WHMP.com podcast page and also on any of your favorite podcast sites such as Apple, Amazon, or Spotify. Please have a wonderful week ahead and remember, don't be ashamed of your story. It will inspire others. See you next week right here on The Hustler Files. You became an RN, LPN, mental health clinician, counselor, or recovery professional because you believe in the value of wellness, treatment of disease, and prevention of illness. And that also means that you have the right stuff to join the medical and mental health care team at the Hamden County Sheriff's Office. Making the world a better place takes a village, and even more so with justice-involved individuals. So why not consider dedicating your next career move to changing countless lives for the better? Visit hcsoma.org. That's hcsoma.org to join the team today.